When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. We are required to forgive one another, not to take revenge, but to be merciful and kind to our neighbor wherever he is in need, though he might have deserved, according to the language of the world, that we should visit on him all manner of evil. Every episode, we give you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered today. We're going back to Germany in the 16th century to hear our annual Martin Luther episode. It's always it's always an interesting time, and Martin Luther time rolls around, Troy. There it is. It's, there's, there's certain traditions in my life that I like to imagine the listener is also, that you are also feeling this, that every time Reformation Day, a.k.a. Halloween, comes around, it's Martin Luther sermon time. And then Easter comes around. It's John Calvin, Passion on the Sermon, Passion mm. on the Cross sermon time. And uh, right before Christmas, it's top 10 sermons of the year. I know you're looking forward to that every year, just like me. Joel, we have had some positive responses to Revive Thoughts out there on social media. I grabbed some of the different comments we've had in different places. But there's one comment in particular that really stood out to me. But we're going to start with some of the irregular comments, and then we'll get to this other one. Um, the first one was on our recent Revived Conversation on Technology. Uh, we had a gentleman, or it could have been a gentlewoman, but I'm pretty sure it was a gentleman, uh, respond on, the, on YouTube and said, Good conversation. The internet is a mission field. Well said. And then on another YouTube uh, video comment we had uh, on our William Bacon Stevens episode, great episode, and Henry David Thoreau's Walden. He describes how they cut ice from Walden Pond in the winter and stored it in a shady wooded area. All you had to do was put straw on it, and the unused ice was still frozen almost a year later. The bio of the people is awesome. Thanks for what you do. Love it. And I, I just the amount of the facts I've learned about ice thanks to that episode just keeps growing. Uh, but thank you so much for leaving that comment. But the comment that most stood out to me, by far, was on Spotify, a gentleman named Eric, who left the comment, Eric, that's all he said. I imagine he meant to put more, uh, but maybe not. Do maybe he though? just wanted to put his name out there. <laughs> maybe he was just like, I'm Eric, and maybe it's just like a this is, I am Groot kind of situation. The thing is, I mean, this strikes me as a very old man thing that someone would do, maybe. where they're not confused what website they're on or what they're typing, and they're in some field, and they think for some reason they need to type in their name, and so they just type in Eric. But the thing is, like, Eric <laughs> does not strike me as an old man's name. Like, that, I feel like, I don't know a single well, old Eric. Well, okay, now, to help you out, it's Eric with a K. So E-R-I-K. Even more modern. Like, even more hip, you know? <laughs> Maybe it is. I'm not sure. I, I, I like to imagine in my mind that this is like an I am Groot situation where, you know, we're, we can't understand it. But, you know, like there's a whole yeah. lot of meaning just behind that one word, Eric. And that, no, that was Novels of intent behind Ex- the one exactly. word, Eric. Eric, thank you so much for your thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> we have done five or six episodes um, in the past 
about Martin Luther. I mean, and it makes sense. We're doing a sermon show where we show on church history. We're talking about the greatest sermons of all time. It, it would be wild to not have multiple episodes after, you know, four years on Martin Luther. And it, it's just been kind of this routine that we started the very beginning of the show. The first year of the show, we put a Martin Luther sermon before, uh, Reformation Day, October 31st, when the day people celebrate him uh, hanging the 95 theses on the door. I don't know if everyone goes to, like, when we went to Bible college, that was a big deal. Like, we were talking about how October 31st is Reformation Day. And I was talking to a friend of mine from another uh, uh, Bible college, and he was like, on our Bible college Reformation Day, we would have, like, the professors would do a play on Martin Luther's life. And I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. So uh, you may think of October 31st and that's in your head, or you may be out there listening and going like, what do you, what do you guys talk about? Like October 31st is Halloween. I've never heard of this, um, Reformation Day, but it's the thing that people do online and it's and out there in the world. And it's kind of fun. And our way to kind of commemorate, commemorate has been these Martin Luther sermons that I highly recommend. If you have not listened to them, go back and check them out. They're all really good. We call it Reformation Day because that's when he did his 95 theses for, yeah. you know, yeah, he didn't explain that part, why, why it's associated Sorry. with this date. It, on October 31st, the 95 theses are nailed to the door of uh, that, uh, are nailed to the door, and that's what starts it off. Now, like, you know, that's, that's, that's why it gets traditionally, you know, acknowledged on this day. This is the moment that you, people argue and say the Reformation was going to happen anyway. Fine, but this is the moment where unmistakably yeah. a, a, tra- a change has occurred. The pivot point, yes. Martin yes, Luther uh, attributed with uh, starting... What we th- what we think of as the Great Reformation now, right? Growing up, he wanted to be a lawyer, but during a thunderstorm, uh, he became terrified and promised uh, God he'd go into ministry. Troy, I do think it would be interesting to rally all of our thunderstorm stories <laughs> in in these testimonials of various I mean, professors. Revived conversation thunderstorms. I mean, the funny thing is, like, that is not just one or two people. We could definitely That's string it together an episode of multiple people who have been, you know what, man, revived conversation, the weather. That's what it'll be. Because it is actually, it is amazing how much the weather has affected the lives of people. There are... Yeah, at least five or six people I can think of whose personal testimonies includes a life-changing experience or decision made in the midst of a traumatic weather event. Interesting to think about. All right, so in the year 1517, uh, largely in response to the Catholic Church selling indulgences, Martin Luther hammered 95 theses to the door of a church challenging the belief systems at the time. 95 points of, of contention in which he thought the Catholic Church was being uh, inaccurate on. And afterwards, he was persecuted and named a heretic. But this movement quickly spread throughout Europe and ended up changing the world, I think is fair to say. Very fair. Uh, it's actually a little bit of a challenge to do this episode because we have covered mul- multiples of aspects of Luther's life before. We did an episode where uh, we literally took his sermon and like read a indulgence sermon right before it, so you could literally hear the difference between what Luther was preaching and what was being preached at the time. Uh, we've also done an episode on the bloody peasant revolts that resulted from his actions that it led to, I mean, he did not directly cause this, but his beliefs spread and led to a peasant revolt that cost a hundred thousand peasants their lives. And just 
how heavy it would be to carry that weight. That was two years ago. And last year we did a full-blown episode on just what a big challenge uh, Luther was up against because I think people kind of forget how powerful, how just devastatingly controlling the Catholic Church was on your life and what it meant to stand up to them was no small task. And this year I want to focus on something different. I want to kind of take a look at the end of his life. Because when you kind of picture, you know, Martin Luther and his life in your head, all his famous actions, all those things that you're probably thinking about happened between the year 1515 and 1530. When we think about the the Martin Luther of we're picturing him, we're not picturing an old man, but he lived until the year 1546. But what happened in those after years? What are the things that happened that he gets involved with kind of after he translates the Bible, after he stands up to the Catholic Church? How does his life end? And I think there's some, we're going to talk about one of the big reasons this kind of part of his life gets ignored. It's not a, you know, it's not a great moment. Um, And then we're going to talk about how his literal, his final day went. And I think it, um, it highlights just how God was using him to the end. Yeah, we, we always, Troy and I, will kind of discuss how we want to go about talking about these topics because we never want to misrepresent people in history. We want we want to accurately represent both their highs and, and their lows. To We want to understand history, you know, uh, whether it be good or for bad. And most people have great moments in lives, but they also have some, you know, moments that we would not agree with in life. And we think it's a a dishonor, a disservice to just ignore those or reframe those in ways that uh, we would like. So uh, we do talk about them, uh, but we also want to contextualize it in the setting, in the environment, in the time, so that we understand, uh, hopefully, or, you know, are, are maybe a little bit better at understanding why uh, decisions like that were made, comments like that were made. Um, even though we don't still agree with them, uh, we still want to keep it in context. So one of the reasons that the end of Martin Luther's life is often ignored is due to a pretty massive scandal that happened in the year 1539. Uh, Philip of Hesse. He was a political prince who was uh, influential in the Holy Roman Empire, and he had an arranged marriage since he was very young, which was very common at that time, but as such, well, not all the time, but as is oftentimes common in arranged marriages, uh, it was a loveless marriage. It was out of duty, and uh, you know they didn't genuinely love each other, and Philip of Hesus uh, often had other relationships with women outside of his wife, but this troubled his conscience. He didn't... He didn't have peace with this. Uh, one day, he did end up falling in love with a woman. It was one of his wife's servants. And uh, this woman would not give up the idea that they needed to be married. She insisted that they be married. And Philip of Hesus came to Luther and asked Luther what he should do. And the quote we have, and again, this is not a pretty pretty look for Luther. It's not, it's not a great quote, but the quote we have Luther says this, he says, I, for my part, admit I can raise no objection if any man wishes to take several wives, since Holy Scripture does not forbid this, but I should not like to see this as an example introduced amongst Christians. It does not beseem Christian to seize greedily and for their own advantage on everything to which their freedom gives them the right. So he's saying, uh, I don't think Christians should do this, but I don't think the Bible says anything wrong about it, which... I think Troy and I would say, eh, I, I think the Bible does. <laughs> that I do. There's stuff I, wrong I think, about it, but 
Um, but that was that not, Martin, not right. Yeah, Martin Luther's take on it with his interpretation there. To most of us, this is very surprising. And I, we are not trying to endorse polygamy. We wanted to just give a little bit of context, like not, not even context, just here was their rationale. These aren't dumb guys. They, they had their reason. And their reason was, and by the way, it wasn't just Luther, uh, Melanchthon and some others were joining him on this. They had actually given very similar advice to King Henry VIII. They just viewed that divorce was worse than marrying another person. Now today, we would all pretty much, I mean, agree, like you don't have more than one wife, but their view was that it's not that marrying a second wife is bad, but the divorce is also bad. And they were basically saying, if you had to choose which of these two bad things to do, uh, I, I guess if you're in this situation, it's better to marry a second wife. This king is definitely going to cheat on his wife. This king is definitely not going to remain with his woman. He has already told you, I'm planned, I have no plans to stick with her. Give me advice. Should I divorce my current wife and then marry this other woman? Or should I stay married to my current wife, but then also add this extra woman? And when that, in which case, when you're dealing with somebody in that situation, what do you tell them? Which is biblically worse? And I think, again, most of us would say, I still just don't know how you can possibly support polygamy in any situation. But we also know that divorce is bad. But let's add another angle. Um, that's pretty important to this because the because the prince did get married to the second woman, uh, had his second wife, and Melanchthon was there. And Luther and them basically said, if you're going to do this, do it as a secret. Don't let anyone know. Well, that was really really stupid. And obviously, it, it without a doubt, you knew already. The word got out, and this became a huge scandal. But let's talk just a little bit more about this. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, for some precedence on his behalf, King Henry VIII over in England, uh, he was in a situation where he had multiple wives as well. But in his case, it was because in, with his logic, with his reasoning, he needed heirs and his wife was unable to bring heirs to the kingdom. Uh, this wasn't the case for 
Prince Philip because him and his uh, wife already had ten children. So there, there's there's plenty of heirs to the throne. There's plenty of people to be had. So that same re- logic and reasoning could not be applied to his specific situation there. But Prince Philip was for the Reformation movement there, wanted to help the Reformation movement there, and the Reformation movement kind of really wanted his help because the Catholic Church was retaking a lot of the ground that the initial Reformation uh, helped uh, establish there at the beginning. So they're in a situation where, by supporting this marriage, they're supporting a political leadership because it furthered the Reformation, but uh, it was immoral to do so. So it's it's this bind that they're in. And it's easy to to kind of look at this in retrospect and go, well, they just caved on the issue. They, they you know they just got what they wanted. They wanted the Reformation to be better established. But uh, it was kind of a scary time in Europe. It was a bloody time in Europe. Over a hundred thousand people died during the Peasants' Revolt, which was in these people's recent memory. And so this isn't just a decision of politics. Uh, there were huge stakes at hand. In the midst of moral conflict, there's also the weight of uh, people's lives at stake here in a lot of these instances with uh, the way that a lot of these leaders could take countries and such. And so these were factors that played into how people thought about this situation. Many have used this as an example of what happens when people compromise politically on a matter like this. They ended up gaining the prince's support. But he lost his next actual, like his army lost his next battle he had with Emperor Charles V anyway. So how much support was that really lost? And what ended up happening too is many people people lost their respect for the Reformation. Catholics who may be considered switching sides now had a negative view of people like Martin Luther because it looks to them like these guys are secretly supporting bigamy. This adds a lot of fuel to the fires of the rumor and propaganda mills that are going against the reformers. This was not a good situation. One of those situations where it seems like people kind of decided the ends justified the means, but it didn't really work out for them in the end per se. But We don't know that either, though. If the Philip had turned Catholic, had turned against them completely, Uh, what would have happened? Possibly people would have died. Of course, this guy would not have found support in the Catholic Church either. It's very difficult to say. A good reminder, I think, to us these days that, you know, hey, these political ends can sometimes end up hurting the church, and when we compromise, it can lead to problems, certainly. Now, let's kind of fast forward, because this happened around 1539, 1540. Let's jump to the very end of Luther's life. One month before he died, he wrote to a friend, I, old, weary, lazy, worn out, cold, chilly, and over and above a one-eyed man. He then said, half dead as I am, I might be able to leave in peace. There was a rumor, by the way, this is very important, there was a rumor in the Catholic Church at the time that if God was displeased with someone— and thought they had been wicked, they would die suddenly. And so people were kind of looking to see, how is Martin Luther going to go out? Because this might determine, at least this might be evidence that he, you know, behaved wickedly in starting the Protestant Reformation if we find that he dies, you know, in a sudden accident, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they might have been getting this from Proverbs 29.1, which says, A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. So they were keeping a close eye on Luther. They wanted to see what would happen 
uh, with him. But he didn't die when he was, uh, you know, what people thought might be his deathbed uh, and trying to see what he would do. He ended up getting a letter from his hometown. There was a dispute that was happening there, uh, and they wanted him to come and uh, give his sense on what was going on, going on in the dispute there. And so um, he mustered up strength and he mounted up. And it was a long journey. It was a snowy, icy journey. It was the middle of winter. And uh, it took him a long time to get there, several weeks. But once he did, he was greeted with cheering and uh, a parade. And uh, it led to the opportunity for him to preach a sermon in his hometown. Um, Shortly after that trip, though, he did end up passing away, but not before he was able to uh, give uh, one last sermon. The town of his birth also became the same town that he died in. He preached his last sermon on his deathbed. He was so ill he could only preach and talk basically about two texts and with his sons and some loved ones present. He preached, Blessed be the Lord who da- daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Psalm sixty-eight nineteen, And then he preached a little bit on John three sixteen. Those are his final two verses that he ever preaches from, literally from his deathbed. Now, again, he dies, and Catholics try to circulate rumors saying, ah, he recanted of Protestantism, or he he said he was scared of hell for all of his apostasy. But his final moments were actually well-watched by doctors and loved ones, and some of his final statements were him affirming the faith he had always taught. No, he did not die suddenly, and he did not die uh, repenting and saying, "I, I had done it all wrong. No, he died peacefully in his sleep in the middle of the night. Then came Peter to Jesus and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee unto seven times, but unto seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And we had, when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, His Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servants therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out, and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their lord all that was done. When his lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. So far the Gospel lesson. Luther's Sermon. The substance of the gospel for today is stated at the beginning. 
Peter asked the Lord how to proceed in case his brother has sinned against him, how often he should forgive him, and whether it is enough to forgive him seven times. The Lord answered and said unto him, I say not unto thee unto seven times, but until seventy times seven. That is, among Christians, forgiveness of sins shall have no measure and no end. One shall forgive the other always, and beware of taking revenge. For this belongs to God alone, and His majesty and power we should never interfere with. This parable treats, at some length, the reason for which we will hereafter collect and notice, one after another. Here, however, we must notice especially the words of the Lord when He says, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. For the command concerning forgiveness of sins we should never apply to kingdoms of this world, in which offices and persons are not alike, but where one has always power and command over the other. Here malice is not to be tolerated, nor are people to be allowed to do what they please, but misconduct must be punished, and people must be admonished to live honorably and righteously. It is not designed here to teach that a father should forgive his children everything and overlook their rascality. He should punish and forgive nothing. So master and mistress and the temporal magistrate should not forgive their servants and subjects their misdemeanor, but punish them. For it is the wicked habit of the world to grow worse and worse the more its transgressions are overlooked. And if children do not want to be trained by father and mother, they must be trained by the executioner who has put an end to their wantonness. Therefore this command does not pertain to the kingdoms of this world, where persons and offices are not alike, as was said before, but to the kingdom of heaven, in which we are all alike, and have but one Lord who is to be enjoyed by all. This kingdom of heaven begins here on earth, and is otherwise called the Christian church on earth, in which God reigns by his word and spirit. In this church, unless a person holds a special office, which is commanded to punish evildoers, we are required to forgive one another, not to take revenge, but to be merciful and kind to our neighbor wherever he is in need, though he might have deserved, according to the language of the world, that we should visit on him all manner of evil. Why the Lord Jesus wants us to forgive, he shows us in the parable concerning the two servants and the king. The first reason is, because our dear Lord wants all his Christians to remember the unbounded grace which he has been showing to them, whilst he would have had great reason to punish them and to send upon them all manner of misfortune. And because we have been enjoying undeserved grace, we should confer the same favor upon our neighbor. This, therefore, is carefully to be heeded. The Lord here shows us the proper way to obtain forgiveness of sins, and tells us very plainly what we are, what God is and does, and what we deserve of Him. By the parable about the servant who owed ten thousand talents, the Lord would teach us our condition before the judgment of God. The word talentum, which is rendered talents in English, is a certain sum of money among the ancients, amounting to about six hundred crowns or dollars. Ten thousand talents, therefore, make an immensely large sum, about six million of crowns or dollars. To such a great amount the Lord compares our sins, in order to show us that we can never remove them, nor render satisfaction for them. For sin has been inherited by us, and we bring it with us from our mother's womb. And the more we grow up and increase in age, the more it makes itself felt, so that we add to the sins inherited from others, our own sins also, and thus our debt towards God grows and overwhelms us, as was the case with this servant. But what is the judgment on this servant because of his great debt? It's this, that his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and his children, and all that he had. Thereby the Lord wants to inform us that we poor sinners are not only unable to pay, but also must suffer death on account of our sins. 
St. Paul says, The wages of sin is death. God also threatens Adam and Eve in paradise. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. On account of our sins, the law of God pronounces such a severe sentence on us all and delivers us unto death. For if there were no sin, no one would have to die. But what shall we do now? Our debt is obvious, and we cannot deny it. The Lord wants to be paid, but we have nothing to pay it with. It is impossible for us to pay. And to be relieved of this great debt, and to escape death, is the great, noble, and comfortable thing which we should open our ears and hearts to hear, that we might realize and learn it. But this is done only when we do as the Lord says that this servant did. He beholds both his great debt and his inability and punishment. This servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. This we call repenting and asking for grace. This the Lord would have us learn if we wish to be delivered from our debt. For whoever would not acknowledge but deny his debt, as the Pharisees do, though they all consider themselves pious and righteous, would only make matters worse. But if we acknowledge our sins, we are caught, for we can never pay the debt. It is a dangerous and terrible error to point people to their own works and satisfaction to atone for sin, as is done in popery. The only way is that you acknowledge your debt or sins, and, like the servant, fall down and ask for pardon, praying with the publican, Luke 18, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And yet, you may rejoin, the servant promises to pay all that he owes. He may say what he will, we must contend that it was impossible for him to do it. Hence it appears as if Christ wanted to imitate the condition of our hearts in such cases, namely that we cannot comprehend such rich and unbounded grace. It always appears to us as though it were too much, and as though God would not be so gracious as to forgive all, but would still require something to be paid. It appears to be too much that everything should be forgiven. Such thought our Lord wanted to point out by speaking of the servant who asked for grace, yet at the same time promised to pay all he owed. And it is also true. Whoever desires forgiveness of his sins with all his heart must, must at least have determined not to increase his debt, but to abstain from sin, to repent, and to live a better life in the future. For to ask forgiveness and at the same time to continue in sin and not be willing to abandon it would be mockery. But how will he who thus resorts to the mercy of God and asks for grace find God disposed? He will find him most willing and merciful. Hear what the Son of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, tells us. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. This shows us the true color with which alone we can properly represent God and his heart. Whoever paints him in other colors does not present him as he really is. To think of God as a severe judge, with whom sinners find no mercy, but of whom they can expect nothing but wrath, is altogether erroneous. This is not the case, though the law teaches nothing else of God, for the law speaks of sinners who do not desire and do not hope for any grace. But those sinners who acknowledge their sins, repent of them, and wish that they had not offended God, who mourn and lament that their lives have been in opposition to God and His commandments, and therefore ask for mercy, shall find mercy, as is here testified. The reason is that God is a merciful God, and has a paternal heart. He has pity on us in our misfortune, and is moved with compassion, as He declares by the prophet, Have I any pleasure in, at all in the wicked, that they should die? 
saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? Therefore, when he find you to be desirous of divine grace and to hate sin and abandon it, he will cheerfully forgive your debt and show mercy unto you, as we here learn from the servant who acknowledges his debt and asks for mercy. But as regards the means by which God will be gracious, the gospel informs us of this in other places, namely, that the Son of God, our dear Lord Jesus Christ, took pity on poor sinners, took their sins upon himself, and paid their penalty by his death. Whoever now trusts in the Lord Jesus and in his death has gained the good will of God, so that he can neither be angry nor punish, for aside from this he has a heart full of compassion and is moved by our misery. For this reason he, of his own accord, promised, as soon as Adam and Eve had fallen into sin and death, that the devil should be divested of his power by the seed of the woman. This is now our doctrine, which we, thank God, have in its purity in our churches, namely, that we have forgiveness of sins and eternal righteousness and eternal life solely by faith in Jesus Christ, that is, by God's grace and mercy. This we here learn from the servant who owes so great an amount, but who is released from his debt without merit or works solely by grace, simply because he trusts in grace and asks for it. Therefore it is an erroneous, false, blasphemous doctrine, which is taught by the papists, that when they preach about forgiveness of sins, they point to people involved in a debt which they are able to pay, to their own works, but when we direct people alone to the grace of God in Christ Jesus, they call us errorists and heretics. But take this gospel and judge who accords with it, we who preach about grace, or they who preach about their works and satisfaction. In short, the object of this whole sermon is to teach us that God will pardon us and will accept us freely and solely by grace, forgiving all our debt. Of such grace the Lord reminds us here, that we may follow His example and be kind and gracious one toward another, and not be so strict in our accounts with our neighbors. For thus only we conduct ourselves like Christians, who have experienced grace themselves and are now gracious toward all. This is the first reason which the Lord here urges, teaching, at the same time, that the true way of salvation is to obtain grace and forgiveness of sins. The other reason is that the Lord wants us to consider well the harm and unfair dealing of our neighbor toward us, so that if we weigh well our own debt toward God and the debt of our neighbor toward us, our debt will amount to ten thousand talents, whilst the debt of our neighbor toward us will be but a hundred pence. The fact that God has forgiven us so great a, de a debt will induce us not to be so strict in our small account with our neighbor, but to be reasonable and generous. A denarius, which is rendered pence in the English version, is an old Roman coin valued at about a dime. A hundred such pence compared with ten thousand talents, of which each one amounts to about six hundred dollars, is a very small sum. The Lord, in fact, says, Though you would estimate your loss very highly, on which account you think that you have reason to be angry, what does it amount to? It is not one gilder compared with a hundred thousand which you owe the Lord your God. If then God closed his eyes against your debt, and does not take account of it, how can you be so unmerciful and so hard as to forgive nothing, and to reckon so very closely? Do not do it for God's sake. Put your sins upon a balance, and also the sins of your neighbor, and do the same as your heavenly Father has done in regard to your many sins, and you will be true Christians. The third reason is that in the parable he calls us servants. The same servant, he says, went out and found one of his fellow servants, which he owed him a hundred pence. 
This also should induce us to abstain from wrath and to be merciful, for we are only fellow servants, and have all one and the same Lord over us, who can punish every one as he deserves. We should leave him undisturbed in his power and right, and not interfere. He will not suffer you to meddle in his office, and to do what belongs to him alone. So, the Lord says in another place, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It is an established order of God that he will punish the sinner, and he has for this work not merely the wicked enemy to attack life and property, and to do harm in various ways where God permits him, but he also has here upon earth father and mother, master and mistress, and civil government. These all have received the command from God to punish the evildoer. Therefore, whether you are a child or a servant, take heed unto yourself when you are wronged by other children or servants. Be not overcome by wrath, and thus induced to take revenge and refuse forgiveness. Think, it is my fellow servant. I have no power over him. I will let him punish who is lord over us both. If he will not do as his office requires, there is one over us all who will not leave the evildoer unpunished. In short, all are asked thus to conduct themselves, one toward another, and to abstain from wrath. This is the meaning of the words used by the Lord in the parable. The same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants. The fourth reason is this. If one will not observe the teaching of the Lord, and will remember neither the inestimable grace of God towards him, nor the small debt of his neighbor, who is his fellow servant, over whom he has no power, but will have his own way, relinquish nothing, but take revenge and punish, what would he be? What would he accomplish by it? Nothing else that, than that such great unreasonableness and unmercifulness would become known. Other Christians will see it, feel very sorry for it, and report all to the Lord. Or, in other words, by such unmercifulness the Holy Ghost is grieved in Christians. They are pained and sigh to God on account of it, and no one has reason to think that such sighing is in vain. For if the Lord would otherwise seem not to know or see and to be slow in punishment, he would be compelled by the sighing and complaining of these other Christians to inquire into matters and to hasten punishment. For in like manner, as the intercession of pious people is not in vain, so the common curse and complaints against the wicked is not in vain either. Hence the Lord hereby warns us not to despise such common curse, but to be kind and merciful toward our fellow servant, for then we will find Christians who will thank God for such mercy, and wish that God may reward us and do the same unto us. Those are indeed unhappy and wicked people, who despise both the common blessing and the common curse, both of which are effective, and blessings for the pious and curses for the wicked. This is expressed especially when hard times set in. He that withholdeth corn, as is common with the avaricious, until it will bring more money, the people shall curse him. But blessings shall be upon the head of him that selleth it, as Solomon says, Proverbs 11. Both, blessing and cursing, are despised by the wicked, but see whether such curse is in vain, and whether those who make themselves guilty of it are not overtaken by all kinds of misfortune. The Lord here urges us to be careful, and not to occasion our fellow servants to feel grieved, and to come before the Lord and tell what they have seen. For hearken to what follows. The Lord called that wicked servant to appear before him. This is the fifth reason. When you will show no mercy to your neighbor, but take revenge and punish, God will not keep silent but will call you to an account. This will be done at the last day. Then the terrible judgment will be executed, which is written, His Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. 
What then, poor man, have you gained by your wrath? You might have had a merciful God, and all your debt might have been forgiven, if only you had been merciful toward your neighbor and forgiven his offense. Now God will not forgive you either, but be as strict in his account against you as you were in your account against your neighbor. That is a poor bargain, in which you lose ten thousand talents on account of a hundred pence. Yet this parable is very inadequate to represent the misery of being deprived of the forgiveness of sins, so that the soul must remain under the wrath and indignation of God forever. Therefore the Lord concludes, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. He calls us brethren of one another. Among brethren enmity and unkindness is altogether unbecoming, but we are all so frail that it will be impossible for us to live as not at times to offend one another in words and actions. Should we then bite and scratch each other like dogs and cats? No. But we should heartily forgive and ask, Of what should I accuse my brother? If God is merciful unto me, and for the sake of his Son Jesus Christ forgives so great a debt, why should I make so much ado about a penny or two? I'll call it square. Forgive and forget, and thank God that he has forgiven me, and made me a partaker of his grace, whilst he has a thousand times more reason to be angry and to punish me than I had to be angry and to punish my neighbor. This is the doctrine which our dear Lord today orders to be preached to his beloved Christians, in order that we may learn to control ourselves, and not to give way to wrath, but that we may settle our debt with our neighbor, and be glad that we succeed in removing both his debt and our own. But alas, we are so slow to yield and suffer ourselves to be led and driven by the devil to wrath, vengeance, and all evils, to our own great injury and loss. For it has been decided, if you are not willing to forgive, neither will God forgive you. If you take revenge, live at enmity and punish, God will also take revenge, be your enemy, and punish you. And a severe wrath and punishment it will be, for God's wrath and punishment will last forever. To this wrath and punishment you expose yourself on account of a small debt to which you have no claim, but which belongs to God, who will surely punish the sins of your fellow servant more severely and more terribly than you can conceive, if you only do not interfere. Thus we also observe that one sin is punished by another sin. To give to vengeance and wrath and contention are led by the devil into such passions that they are unable to pray the Lord's Prayer, for they discover a thorn in it which will not pass over their lips, inasmuch as a Christian is commanded to pray, Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. They very well feel that if God will not forgive them unless they themselves forgive others, their own sins will never be forgiven. Such a judgment they do not want to pronounce on themselves, and would therefore rather not say the Lord's Prayer. Do you not think the devil has them under his control, since they even prefer vengeance to prayer? With the loss of prayer, they lose everything, yea, they make themselves guilty of a twofold disobedience to God. Thus it comes to that such people abstain from the holy sacrament of the body and blood of Christ and rob themselves on account of a small, insignificant, and unreasonable wrath against their neighbor of the highest comfort against sin and an evil conscience. Would it not be a thousand times better to give up all wrath, to suffer wrong, and to be reconciled, than to rob ourselves willfully and wantonly of the grace of God and to fall under his wrath? Therefore let him whose heart is thus hardened in wrath and hatred take this gospel, consider it well, 
and ask God to forgive him the sin of having continued so long in hatred against his neighbor and of having lived a life of wickedness? And let him at once forgive with all his heart in order that that the sentence and judgment of God may not overtake him, but that he also may obtain forgiveness of sins and eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Savior. May God, our gracious Father in heaven, grant this to us all. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was read by Brian Wolfmuller. Wolfmuller uh, has done all the the Martin Luther sermons for us today. We actually have some interviews with him in previous episodes. Uh, fun guy to talk to. Yeah, he's really nice, really great guy. We've really appreciated him giving these uh, Martin Luther sermon series to us throughout the years. And he's a wonderful person. If you have not, go check him out. He's a total Martin Luther expert. Also, we wanted to say that we hope that you would leave us some reviews or some comments as you can see we have had people leaving reviews and episodes comments and social media shouting us out putting us out there on twitter or instagram facebook and we are always very very appreciative somebody who always uh shouts out our shows and shouts out different shows for example on instagram is brian millennial there's lots of wonderful people wonderful people out there who are uh telling the world about what we're doing we'd love for you to do the same and if you can't think of anything just just say Eric. We'll know that you're listening and you're thinking of us out there. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.